0: So, I was on the phone the other day with David Porter, who is the editor-at-large of magazine.com. I don't want you to think we're some kind of glossy print magazine. Do those even exist anymore? Was that a, a confusion that you actually had, or was I just projecting it? Anyway, David Porter and I were talking, and we were talking about this band. I'll give you a hint. They're from Scotland. And he was like, I love that band. And I was like, I love him too. He said, "Are they still around?" I said, "They're still around." He said, "Get them for the podcast." I said, "Okay." So I reached out, and guess what? Two days later, they were on the podcast. Did the interview literally within 48 hours? The whole thing had happened, and I was realizing, well, I think I manifested that. That conversation manifested that interview. And I was thinking, like, maybe i you know all I have to do in life is just manifest stuff, and it'll it'll just happen as long as I, you know, manifest it with great belief. <laughs> so, you know, this interview you're about to hear is a manifested interview with great belief, and I'm still, uh, you know, I'm kind of at it now. I'm trying to see if my manifesting powers are greater than just this interview. I'm trying to manifest a date with Lily Collins. I'll keep it posted on that one. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, The Manifest. I mean the podcast. Check this out.
1: Hey!
0: the silencers a band which features my guest today on the program jimmy o'neill let me tell you a little bit about the silencers and jimmy o'neill formed out of the ashes of the post-punk outfit fingerprints the silencers core was comprised of two members of that band guitarist Shaw burns and singer jimmy o'neill The Silencers quickly signed to RCA and hit the ground running, putting out three brilliant albums in under five years. They had radio hits, they toured with Squeeze, The Pretenders, The Alarm, and at one point, when opening for Simple Minds at Wembley, they played in front of 80,000 people. And they crushed it. Why? Well, because they're a great band, and also because O'Neill is one of those front men you can't take your eyes off. He's a dynamic performer who's loaded with energy and charisma making every second of a silencer's gig a captivating experience. Over the course of their career, the silencers have put out nearly 15 albums, including A Letter from St. Paul, A Blues for Buddha, A Night of Electric Silence, so there's a real theme of uh in those titles, I just realized that, and their latest effort, Silent Highway. Not a silent highway, Silent Highway, which marks their first new album in 15 years. One listen in, and you can tell the silencers have not lost a step. O'Neill remains one of the most thoughtful songwriters around, and Silent Highway is a thrilling return to form. Although Burns passed away in 2007, O'Neill is carrying the torch proudly, along with a crack band that includes two of his kids, Aura and James O'Neill. Now, admittedly, this is an expurgated history of a really amazing band, but don't worry, Jimmy will fill in the gaps and then some. He's got amazing stories and profound insights about music and being in a band. This guy is the real deal, and this conversation is the real thing. So here we go. Me and Jimmy O'Neill of The Silencers having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
2: Just recently, very very intense with lots of uh, promotion because of the new album. Uh, we did a big big TV show in France that I actually did about thirty years ago or something like that, and that was uh, it's a show called Tarte and it's all it's and so I did the show twice in the past when we were really big big with the silencers. And they asked me back to do it with, for the new album, and it was really exciting. But it was also very stressful because I hadn't done lots of stuff like that uh, uh, for a long time, you know. But it was cool.
0: You mean like live TV stuff?
2: Yeah, it's it's live, and it's also like the the thing the the the, the way it works is they don't necessarily want you to do what you can do. They want they don't they don't put you in a comfort zone. You've got to kind of make things up. So if there's an interview, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but that's cool, I don't mind that. But the other thing was, they wanted to make you do an acoustic song. So there's millions of acoustic songs I could do. And that's live on TV in front of millions of people, you know. And, and I go, well, yeah, I can do this. And I had it, we had a great song by uh, that we do, uh, as I say, my kids are in the band. I've got, I've got my, my son, two sons and a daughter in the band. And we do a great version of Graham Parsons' Sin City. And I proposed that because that would have been... Because the way we do it, it's like really, uh, really, really good. And they, and they said, no, no, we, that's not known, well enough known. You know, so... That, so and then and then they kept... The, and they said, well, what can I do then? And they said, oh, we need the answer now, you know? And I was going... Oh, Bob Marley, I'll do Bob Marley as, as this is, as this love, you know. So, so it, it was, and, and then I was saying, why did I say Bob Marley? Because it's pretty tricky. <laughs> <laughs> it's so difficult. It's just, it's not so difficult, but when you know you've got to do it, uh, and, you know, I thought it's not what, I couldn't sing one of my own songs. I had to do a cover. So, you know, and it's during an interview, just like live, it's just off the cuff. But when you when you manage to do it, it's brilliant, you know, but but it's it's pretty pretty stressful. I didn't sleep very well before the concert, before the night before. And so it was full on. And I also had started the day with about five interviews. So you know, what I mean, this is it's, uh, it's tough at the top. <laughs>
0: yeah. I saw that original, that original clip from 30 years ago where he was. I think it's the same one but he was kind of giving you a little bit yeah, about Yeah, the same French. guy. Same guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a cool clip, I but I didn't understand the French, but he, it seemed like he was giving you a little bit of uh, a little, he was ribbing you a little bit about your French. But
2: yeah, well, it was, it, well, this time he said to me, eh, Jimmy, I know uh, you probably speak better French than me. So we're going to, so uh, we'll just do the interview in French. I had been told before the show, you've got to speak in English because then you'll be treated like an international artist And I, by the guy who runs the record company here. And I said, look, if Nagy, I said, Nagy, if Nagy speaks to me in French, I'm going to have to just reply in French. And also it's just from my own head, I'm used to speaking in French now, you know. Uh, even though it's not perfect French, it's still, uh, they, they, when I was speaking in French, they, they, they had me on subtitles, you know. Because it's because of my Glasgow accent, you know. So I'm speaking French, but lots of French people would have difficulty with it. But they would have difficulty with it if I was speaking with a a Marseille accent, you know, because of lots of different accents as there are everywhere, you know. I, in you all know? my research about you, I never
0: understood your connection to France. I know the silencers did well yeah. in France, but yeah. what is your own background with the with the French?
2: Well, the the the. the my my f- Francophile, as I say, br- background was when I was a bit s- when I was 16, my, my mother and father, who were both we both loved French. My mother was a, uh, both of them were teachers. My mother was a cookery teacher, she was a cookery principal, my dad was a headmaster. So they came from the the uh, my dad always loved French films, and and he would, he would stay up. He would let me stay up late at night and watch the some of these classic French films, and then we came to France and uh, and we stayed in Saint Malo, which is not—it's where I'm um, now in Brittany. And Saint Malo in Brittany is a fort, fortified town. It was rebuilt after the war. Actually, it was re, it was reconstructed after the war, but it's a fortified town and it's 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 uh, a beautiful town. You know, it's a beautiful part of. It's very. They make films there, you know, they make a lot of films. They made the Three Musketeers, the latest French version of the Three Musketeers they made there. Because it's uh... so anyway, the we spent three weeks, three weeks there on holiday, and it was the best holiday we ever had as a family. It wasn't it wasn't like a normal holiday because what was interesting, we were living in a little cafe, and the women of the house they were cooking. Uh you had a breakfast, you had a lunch, and you had a dinner. And we had never eaten like the French eat before, and it was just so uh, strange, you know, and very interesting. And by the end of the three weeks, we were loving it. We were absolutely loving it, and it was a it was a great that was a great holiday. And so that always stayed with me, and I always had a romantic attach attachment attachment to speaking French. Uh, one of the reasons was that when I was young I had a speech impediment that if you if you're going to say great I would say great like that I had a I would say it's brilliant it's great and that that is the way the French speak say they are mm. so I had to go to speech therapy to get rid of that but when I started to speak French uh, at school because uh, we were at school in Scotland and that and uh, I learned French there. That became a, that that fact of having the French R, they call the dark R in Scotland. A, uh, that, that was an advantage. So it's strange. So maybe in another life, I, I, I was French, you know? Yeah. French. So
0: France <laughs> offered you sort of a, a phonetic home.
1: Yeah.
2: On, right? <laughs> sort of, yeah. And also, <laughs> well, it's, it, I also have th- a theory about, about speaking in another language because it just means that you're not you you're you're out of you you're kind of uh, kind of constantly uh uh having to be going to another part of your mind to speak the other language and that is that's pretty good actually you know that's pretty good because you ha- you have to kind of uh, it, it doesn't give you enough time to sort of, uh, think too much, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, uh, and uh, I, I always felt good in France, and France is a beautiful, elegant kind of country, you know, I mean, well, I, it's not all perfect, like no country perfect, but uh, I've always, I've always loved it here, and, and uh, I love the lifestyle, I love it, uh, and I was always attracted to it and by a sort of mystery, the, the French bought, more, they bought into the, the Sainlessers more than anybody else. They, they, they were, we were huge in, in France for a good, good period. And the great thing about France is it's not an ageist country, mm. which means that some of the biggest stars are older guys, like Serge Gainsborough. You know, you know with the most beautiful girl you've ever seen, you know uh, and jade birkin Mm. and and that whole idea of uh he's poetic he's a brilliant musician is 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 a complete alcoholic and he's ugly you know that always that always appealed to me (laughs) (laughs) i'm 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 joking i'm joking i I know but he's a he's a wonderful uh, i mean gainsborough is just a legend absolute legend and somebody. You, you know, if you're a rock and roll like me, you look and you go, this guy is completely off the wall. He is great, you know. Uh, and, I, and he's made some fantastic albums. And when I came to France, uh, a friend of mine gave me a whole, uh, uh, the whole collection of Gainsbourg, Gainsbourg, Gainsbourg and, I, and I was amazed because he started in the 50s and it was all jazz, mm. influenced ballads and things like that. And he was a great piano player. And then he... When he was starting doing the pop, he was mixing classical music with with pop, and kind of dada dada ideas. Dada is you know, "Je T'aime en plus, which is a song about a girl having an orgasm on a record. Number one in '67, and because of the pirate radio stations, and that was the first song that I ever danced, a slow dance with a girl, you know. At, at the school dance so all these things you know start to become important in your head <laughs>
0: yeah I, the first slow dance i ever danced to my, yours is way better jimmy it was "Islands in the stream by dolly parton and kenny rogers
2: all right I've, you know you know uh that that, is a, that was a kind of song that, that that in scotland you know if you went to a, if you went to a, a the, you know the club you know that would be played that would you know everybody would be singing along with that <laughs> i like your chances better than mine though
0: with with your your <laughs> song choice <laughs> yeah. i think our story has ended differently that night
2: <laughs> oh yeah perhaps yeah yeah
0: yeah um i you know it's interesting when you have a romantic vision like you did with france and you get to live that out yeah and like a lot of people i'm in california a lot of people come west because they have a a romantic idea of california and i always ask well, that i certainly the, did yeah. right yeah oh, absolutely. i always ask if the romantic vision matches up with the daily the daily quotidian life so daily life in france is it as uh fulfilling as you had you know had sort of thought it would be
2: yeah well as because as as very as as, as france has stayed the country as A lot of French people don't think it has, but for me, France has mostly stayed the country that it's always been, rather than changing too much. Of course, you get tremendous pressure on the market. You know, when I first came, they said, oh, there'll never be a McDonald's in France. But of course, that's, you know, (laughs) that's not going to be possible. Uh, uh, But it's also because a lot of young kids, they don't care about traditions, so they just you know they just eat burgers i mean the burger because of of kids a uh, budget uh, the french eat probably eat more burgers now than you know than a lot of other countries because just because it is cheap and also uh, they have different standards of burgers they make really good ones and they, they you know i mean the, the french idea of eating is always to titillate the palette and all that kind of stuff so they they, they do really good ones but it's also because people's budget has is not the same and especially for younger people that's what i mean you know
1: yeah did you have
0: i got really into you guys in when i was in college so at university you know 88 89 yeah and um i think you played san francisco and i think i was too young to go yeah at the time uh, but yeah. did your, did your idea, did your romantic idea of California, or at least your vision of it, how did that match
2: up with the first time you got here? You know, I, I, I've been incredibly lucky because during the new wave period, my first band, Fingerprints, we came, we did two, we did concerts, uh, tours in, in, in the USA, and we, we, we had, it was uh, FBI, uh, Ian Copeland's uh agency that took the british bands over to and we played haraz in new york we played madame wongs in uh, los angeles and we played up and down the played the west coast the first tour we did was actually we weren't as fingerprints we were fingerprints but we supported a young girl singer who was on stiff records in britain called rachel sweet and Mm. she was she was only 16 years old and uh, she had a really good voice and it was interesting, you know, it, you know, it was bringing back kind of pop rock music, but with that kind of pizzazz they had in the, the 60s, I suppose. And the New Wave was very attached to that. You know, the New Wave was was a band playing, you know, a real band, not long solos and that, but tight songs and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so Fingerprints, without us trying to do anything, we actually, lots of journalists loved our band, and then by uh, an accident, eh, because we weren't doing it at all well in, in Great Britain, they didn't under, quite understand what we were trying to do. I mean, I understood what we were trying to do because all my references, my best, my biggest references, although I liked all kind of American music, but was Zappa and Beefheart. That was my two absolute, eh, especially Beefheart was my. He was like the Salvador Dali of pop for me, you know. He was the, you know, he was incredible. But so I was trying to put some of that kind of guitar, strange guitar, blues, blues-based guitar, into pop songs uh, for fingerprints. And we worked together. uh, worked a lot together with the other guitars to create strange kind of little guitar things. Uh, but the, but it was still quite pop because I've, got, you know, the Beatles gave me that. Beatles and Stones gave us that kind of outlook, you know, to how to, how to make something, you know, and that was, the 60s were always my thing, you know, I, I, I loved, I loved uh, that whole period when the, when beat, the beat groups took over, you know. Mm. But the, uh, so when we came to the States, uh, the States was everything and more than I thought it was going to be. I mean, it really? was a bit, a bit crazy especially the new wave thing, because the very first night in, in, in uh, San Francisco, I remember uh, we did a gig with 999, and 999 were a band that I knew, uh, because uh, Keith Lucas's band, uh, they, they, they had became punk, and my, and we had became punk. But before that, he was in a band called Kilburn and the High Roads, which was Ian Dury's first band, and me and my wife were big, big fans. Of of that band, and it was it was the beginnings of punk in London. It was before punk, and we were I was playing in a bar a bar band, and we used to go to all these different concerts and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but in the states, I was amazed. The new wave scene in the states was more was what I actually liked better. It was a kind of arty thing. Mm. It wasn't new wave in and in, in, in Britain very very soon became a kind of. A violent, a violent night, you know, you know, with skins and punks fighting, and no girls there, you know. And that, and when I came to America, I was amazed that the girls were all, you know, the, initially when the when we put our own concerts on, there was a lot of girls that came to. Of course, there was a lot of kids that came to the concert, and you know, girls came to the concert, and that was great. But very soon. It became a, a real macho guy thing, and that wasn't the original idea. The original idea was more like what I was seeing in America, which was kind of uh, uh, what can I say? It was, it, it was the, it, I thought it, you know, the B-52s for me, that was really what I considered to be my idea of punk. It wasn't just uh, screaming into a microphone over three chords. But a lot of a lot of people bought into that as well and the the kind of yob yob crowd you know the oi 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 crowd which is almost like kind of fascist kind of stuff you know right right that jumped in and punk and started kind of having an effect and so uh so when i came to the states i, I, I loved I, I was at the my, my gardens the first night i asked where can we go now they stayed in my Gardens and I I went to the Boohy Gardens that night and had a great time stayed out all night came back to the hotel in the morning and chat. our guitarist he had drank too much and he had without he got arrested and put in a in, in, in jail and was nearly thrown out of the states and the stuff wreckers had to go down with the lawyers to the jail to get him out you know, I mean, this, this is it was rock and roll, you know what I mean? <laughs> All these stories were like you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't have made it up. You know, it was exactly what you're you right in, in a kind of rock and roll film, you know. But uh, I was out at the Mabehe Gardens with the tartan suit on, spiky hair, lemon socks and uh, robot shoes. And of course I was going, hey, what are you? Hey, can you say come come here come here? This guy sing it, get the, this guy talking, say something. Uh, what do you want me to say? Oh, that's so cute.
0: <laughs> Americans are suckers for an accent, Jimmy. What can I
2: tell you? Well, well, yeah. I mean, and also, you know, one girl said, I remember uh, she was real. She was really hardcore punk. and She said, uh, hey, the guy must say he's, he's not a stupid guy. He's touring America, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And then we came after the thing as the end of the Rachel Sweet thing, we we we, we played the bottom line uh, and her too was CBS, I think it was. We played the bottom line and Bruce Springsteen came He see us and, and he came back and he held my guitar in his hand uh, after the show. And my guitar was all sort of designed with silver paper. It's on the Fringe Prince album cover, the first one. And it looks like a kind of space age Telecaster it's a space-age telecaster but it looks like a national steel but it's, it's just silver paper that's on it so it's a what's it called a kind of deodorant packet that i cut up and i made a kind of art thing on on my guitar and bruce picked up the guitar and he went let me see that guitar and he looked, he looked at me he looked at me and he said it's fucking bullshit <laughs> I said, yeah it is, it's bullshit, you thought, it was, you thought it was a real metal guitar, you know, so uh, so that was the kind of stories that on that first tour, and by, because, we we didn't know this, but there had been lots of journalists came to see us, and they all loved the, the, loved the idea of New Wave, and in fingerprints they saw something they could agree with, of liking, because it was kind of it was, I suppose, more, more uh, organised, more worked, and we were, a, we were a great, great band, which mm. some of the English journalists just didn't get it, didn't know what we were trying to do at all. Like, like you know, you've got to remember that police were in the charts at that time, and police were not liked in Britain by the journalists, and Dire Straits, who just came after, they, they were similar, and they were not liked in Britain either until they became famous in America so it was that kind of thing that you were, had to deal with you know and and because of that our first album uh, the Fing- fingerprints album which was out on unfortunately it was out on the uh, import went to number one add-on in the usa so it was played on more radio than all other british music that was the album that was on and that because of these that kind of connection that obviously then We'd sent us on tour, we did a tour with XTC then, after that, on our own. And we played with Talking Heads in Chicago and all that. And it was a fantastic t- time. You know? yeah.
0: I didn't know that you tour
2: with XTC. Yeah, that was the first tour because we were, we were stuck on the tour, because XTC had a, had a tour booked, but they didn't have a support band, and Virgin took the idea of this band's album has, has exploded in, in, in the USA. Get them over there. And it was a funny relationship because they were English and we were, we weren't all Scottish, but we were we were so happy to be in the states and really happy. And we were just playing our socks off, you know, and uh, we were very down to earth, and we were getting a great reaction every night, and because we were on the radio as well. So, so it was uh, there was a when you're playing with two bands, you always get the band thing where the that you haven't got enough. You know, they watch you dance on the stage and then they push the albums further forward so you can't dance on stage and things like that. Anyway, but there's always that with bands, you know. That's I don't have anything because I really like TC as a as a as a band, and I like the two guys that wrote songs, you know, really they're really, really good. And remember the thing is we were both on the same label, or on Virgin.
1: Mm, but, you're, but oh,
2: the X T C was uh, Richard Branson's favorite group, and so they were the kind of the good boys and we we got zero. We were getting nothing. We were getting very, very, very little, you know, but. Well,
0: not a lot of people can say they tour with XTC because they didn't tour for very long. No, well,
2: that was the point. They didn't like touring. And I love touring because, you know, I mean, like when the first day happens, I'm out all night going to, every touring I went to, I was going to the punk clubs and going to the new wave clubs that were going on just to kind of, Really soak up all the all the information, and I, I loved that. And I I would come back it. I would the my the usual story was the guy who, or two man. He was saying, what would happen is I would say ah, he's going to get fined. He's not here. And I would, then a taxi would get up. I would come out to taxi because I'd been out all night. Go into the, the car, fall asleep. I would put the chieftains on and I to the chieftains, and then I would fall asleep and they would drive. He would drive one at the concert because we were in we were driving the state. In a car, you know, a big, a higher American car, and it was, it was pretty heavy actually. <laughs> going and doing all those concerts, but it was brilliant. So that was really if you can. You always used to saying it's absolutely true. If you can tour the states, that makes or break a band. That makes or breaks a band because you be you got to be a kind of gypsy to to fit into that rock and roll lifestyle. Where, and I, I suppose I had always waited for that moment. Oh, and I and I just took. I just loved. I loved the moment of all the experiences and all finding out. You know, traveling and all that kind of stuff and playing every night. That was amazing. You seem like the kind of guy who maybe would put in a thirty-six
0: hour day
2: hey, on those days. Yeah. And those days. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's without drugs. Right?
1: Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I
2: mean, that was that was that was. I didn't take. I was too uh, wired. Even I mean you do you do you, you eventually uh, we had all I had all gone through a period and I had kind of messed up my head with acid and things like that you know but yeah uh, uh, yeah what I remember that I was I, I don't know how to describe that but when I, when we'd start on a tour I always thought about about I might not make this back I mean I might not make this through the tour you know so every night is just going to be go for it. And, that's, that's, and I've been, that's more or less how I've loved my life. You know, and, and then we had to comments because I'm not completely uh, crazy or, or irrational. I'm not irrational, no. <laughs> but if I, I watch those
0: silencers live stuff and I go like that, I mean, your energy level on stage is
2: just, I mean, it's infectious, it's unbelievable. Well, that wasn't an act. The thing is yeah. that w- one of the reasons I had to do that, and it was the same with Silences when I started when we did, we did Silences, because Silences, even though the music wasn't the same kind of thing, I, I always... I was in the early days, I watched Dr Feelgood in London, and when they came off stage, of course, it was a short show, you know, maybe 50 minutes or something like that, but they would all come off drenched in sweat, and I, and I thought, that's what I want to do. That's what it should be like. You should have to come off. Like after playing a soccer match or something like, you should sh- come off. You're giving everything, and so I applied that to silencers. And when you've got audiences, uh, who were were appreciative, and they want to dance or they want to jump about, you know, that you know that's just you know it was fantastic, you know, and yeah, the my 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 energy levels, I I I, I used to be able to surprise myself. Because I couldn't believe I had that amount of energy, but it was adrenaline. I was really running on adrenaline, you know.
0: So there's two things that could happen: you could do that, get off stage and collapse, or get off stage and keep going.
2: Well, I mean, you go off stage, relax. Then I would have a because I used to. I always said the rule that don't drink too much, have a beer or something, but don't drink too much before a concert. Because I tried it all. I tried. I tried everything that was there to get rid of my nerves because I was a very nervous performer. I didn't really like being on stage. And that was when Punk Heart came along, I, I realised, see, my kind of very edgy, what, wired type of act. That's not thats not an act. That's just being me, but that can be turned into an act for Punk. And that's the way I was. So I was really wired and, jumping around, and and that helped me control my nerves, you know, you know, so. That, I yeah, was all, I guess,
0: yeah I, it kind of, it kind of uh, was almost like a bomb for that
2: kind of raw feeling. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think, actually, I was probably, you know, a lot of people were probably the same, a lot of guys in other bands, you know, they would never have got on stage if I hadn't been for punk, you know, because it was the only way they fitted into this, as soon as they sort of said, this is my time, and that's what I realised. I went, this is it, man. You've got to go for it, you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, it. It's still. Uh, I've still got amazing memories of that 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 period. You know, late late seventies, early eighties period. You know, uh, uh, it was a fantastic scene in in California and also in New York, but also all the other little towns and even in you know canada you know you're going up and that that scene so everywhere you go you you were the in the exclusive kind of company of the real cool people that got this that got that that understood it you know
0: (laughs) in in many ways silencers were almost like a second act for you it was like part two of yeah absolutely
2: Silencers formed in london i was i was i was living in london and i had been living in london the fingerprints period and it was when, and uh, we, we made the demos, I made the demos in London. And then uh, after the demos, uh, we got in touch with Joe, who was a bass player. And Joe was, uh, he was the right guy to be the bass player because he, he heard the uh, demos and he went, wow, I, I want to be in, I want to be in. And also him and Martin, the drummer, they had been in a band before, and I had been in a band before with Cha. And Cha was, uh, so, we decided that uh, uh, London was the the, the uh, because we were four Scots, Glasgow Scots living in London, and it just right away it was uh, an identity thing. There was no uh, no no problems at all, you know. We were just and we, we all wanted to be in a really good band. Then, but then the problem was. How do you become a really good band? And I just, I, I had been, because of the fingerprint situation, I am saying, look, it's songs. We need songs. So with the idea of some of the ideas that I had, we had at the start, I basically, I sat sometimes with Cha playing, because Cha lived close to me. And the other guys were there in the other part of London. But I just... And... Uh, it was when I had about three or four that I realised the I think the first one was I see red, second one was I ought to know or answer me, and the third one was a uh, painted moon. So and that was all in the period of see as a writer you get you, you, what I always wanted was a was a I, what was in the air was I could see it was you know we were we were Scots there was. I grew up with folk music, Celtic folk music and I still always loved folk music and my, you know the, the whole Dylan, the early Dylan, uh, Neil Young and all like of Joni Mitchell that was part of my baggage and I had played lots of songs and open tunings and all that I had always done all that and one, one of the one of the reasons uh, the thing that I thought was important with the sound is we, we needed to have a kind of Celtic sound but it was rock and roll and it was rock and roll that people could like in the states or people could like everywhere so it, it, and it was going to be big because we'd all played all the, all the clubs if you think about it you know I was on the same with fingerprints as I was on this we were on the same tours with Simple Minds and am a U2 and so when I formed fingerprints I wasn't thinking about getting back to the clubs I was thinking we need to get this we need to get out we need to have a hit record and we need to be on on big support tours, or on tours, and it was that was just what uh, a friend of mine, uh, Stuart Adamson, who was in the Skids, uh, and he formed Big Country, and we knew one another because we toured together. Uh, uh, you know, he, he said, "What are you up to now?" And I said, "And he had just formed Big Country," and I said, "Oh, Stuart, just at Stadium Rock, that's what we're going to do," and he was laughing. And, and I was kind of, well, I was, it was a joke, you know, but I'm saying, oh, no, 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 listen, Stadium Rock, that's where we're going. And he he was laughing, he said, oh, I love that, Jimmy. He said, because he was saying, yeah, that's what it is. That's what we're going to do. And all these bands had been punk bands, and all these bands were writing kind of socially conscious songs, but you two had just gone to another level. Mm. And that's what we all wanted to do. We all were all musicians, that was the thing. You wanted a great band, you wanted to play Uh, and Big big, uh, Theaters and with Fingerprints we had done support gigs with Graham Parker on big concerts as well, you know, so that was, that was, it was just a stepping up, you know, Uh, so there was no, it wasn't like selling out, you know, a lot of people saying, ah, he sold out, you know, saying, wait a minute, no, 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 we're taking the message we want to put into songs but we know it's going to have to be tailored for a bigger audience because, you know what I mean, so, and that that's what happened. And so we kind of got compared to, oh yeah, this ba- band are like u two or the like simple minds and that. And I we, we said, well, we're at musical, we're not really like them at all. But we're selling records to the same sort of people that buy their records, if that's what you want. If that's that does that sound, you know, I don't think that's selling out. It's just trying to make a living, you know. Anyway. <laughs>
0: I always yeah. felt that Stuart was incredibly underrated as a guitar player. Was he, was he pretty brilliant? Stuart
2: Adamson was the guy that invented Celtic rock. Stuart Adamson, the skids, was the first guy I heard I could get a guitar and show you, but it's, he's, what he's playing is he's, he's playing uh, simple lines, but all with the, with a, a, a drone going on. So he would and I, I was doing that with fingerprints as well, but in a slightly different way. But when I saw Stuart, eh, he was doing it with a big heavy sound and he was doing it with a, he played a Gibson, uh, what's it called, uh, oh, I can't remember. He played Red Gibson, uh, Gibson, Gibson, I'm like, uh, I've forgotten the name of the, the guitar he's playing. But he played it with a heavy sound, a Yamaha amp, really overdriven. And it was such an amazing sound. And when I the skids blew me away with that sound. And uh, I mean, I never I never actually consciously copied shit, but was that idea? When I saw that, I thought, because you two, what you two were doing was taking Irish folk music, those melodies that come natural to your ear, but it was rock and roll, it wasn't and mixing it with a bit of rock, mixing it with rock. But it was a new kind of rock, it was not a rock, it was coming from Ireland. You know, it was, it was a... And nobody else would have done that but an Irish band. And nobody else would have done what Stuart had did but a Scottish band. And, and it's it's because of that, that, those roots. He's playing the, he called it bagpipe guitar, you know. It was like, I think it was a journalist said the bagpipe guitar of Stuart Adamson. And I thought, this is a great idea because you can be all that folk music that I had learned and, you know, I was I was like, when I'm talking about, there's a great Scottish band called The Incredible String Band that I was, when I was a fan, I was absolutely fascinated with. And they, they they had a book and all the books were full of open tunings. So I was in heaven because I could learn all these open tunings and play a a. And play either blues or, because I thought it was a huge blues collection, I could play blues or folk, you know? And and that was the same with there, there was a lot of dad gad, there was a lot of OMG, as the stones used, obviously, because, you know, I was a fan of the stones as well, you know, when I was a kid. But the that all, all that made me started to make sense. And with the Sanicers, I had found a sort of, Chord that I'd used with fingerprints, and it was an open B chord. Uh, Well, you don't you don't play it in open tuning, but you play it and you play it on in a B shape, and that became the identity of the silencers, Uh, because it's it's uh, I had played a tune called "She Moves Through the Fair" in this open open it's in conventional tuning but I play it and it sounds as if I'm playing an open tune tuning. and actually that's what I did with conventional tuning I started to play the conventional guitar as if it was open always looking for chords that rang out And so that became a big big part of the silencer sound you know just writes. you know a guy was watching me you know, I, would, I played the acoustic concert the other day and that was he was a guitarist and he said I don't understand how you how you're getting what I don't understand the chords you're playing. I said, oh, that's just my thing. I'm letting all the chords ring out, so I'm not playing the full chords. And I'm playing shapes to allow to have quite often the E and the B ringing, you know, which gives you a big, big sound, you know. And that's actually kind of unconventional. Well, it's just my thing. Right. I've never seen anybody else doing it. It's just that I'm one of these people that I've never taken a lesson. And I've always just watched and listened and played the guitar and worked at it through my own way. I'm, I'm kind of very uh, insular in a lot of ways. I just found my own way of doing things. And then after a while you go, I mean, obviously, you know, because you realise, well, you know, most guitar based on Chuck Berry, you can say, you know, even all, even heavy metal. It's still, it's still mostly Chuck Berry, you know. Uh, uh, and, uh, but, so I was trying to find a way of playing a guitar that was, that was different, you know, the, you know. And that that's for the folk thing, that, I, that I always had that, that, the folk thing, I said, yeah, you know, the only difference between folk music and and, and U2 is just, we're going to play <laughs> incredibly more, but, powerful and loud you know and that's it that's it you know because that's it you know uh, uh, and also uh has got a voice like an opera singer and he's going to go for it you know and and that's what gives you that stadium sound Uh, it you know and that's what works in stadiums because i remember reading an article about about lou reed when Lou Reed did big shows, and I was a huge fan of the Velvet Underground, like everybody in Glasgow was, you know. Uh, and Lou, he was talking about Ian Dury because Ian Dury supported Lou Reed in America. And I remember the article, this is another thing that stuck in my head. And Lou said, Yeah, I was watching Ian on stage, he's, he's got some nice moves, but he's got to understand that he's in a big, big, big hall, he's in a, a stadium, you know, he's in a big, big. So the gestures have got to be big gestures. You know, and this is before, this is actually, you know, this is uh, uh Well, it's at the start of punk. It's at the start of, uh, oh, maybe '80 or something like that, you know, whatever, 81. But he says, you know, and so he's doing something on the stage, but nobody can see him, what he's doing, because he's not filmed. And, you know, but uh, you've got to have big gestures, you've got to have... And that's Lou Reed saying that, so I thought, you know yeah he's right but of course that was when i said that show was the metal machine no not metal machine music the, the animal show oh. Metal Animal. Or something. you know that rock one? animal yeah rock and roll Animal. rock and roll animal. and it, it wasn't his best music but the band were really good and it was it was it was a statement you know <laughs> i always i loved him because just as a writer he was just absolutely brilliant and that when i went to new york that's what I used to think about was about what underground and going to clubs and you were going to the same clubs as uh, the whole world scene and all that kind of stuff, you know? What about a <laughs> guy a representative
0: has, player? Like, what about a guy like Edwin Collins? Did he, did he impress well,
2: you? Uh, well, he, that, that he he was different because Edwin Collins is the kind of guys that we had been in bands that we, and they were a kind of little, uh, an indie band. Now I love, I liked Edwin Collins and I liked uh, Orange Juice. I liked the, the band, but but it, th- that was... I thought that was kind of amateur, almost sounding. Mm. You know what I mean? But but amateur, amateur, not amateur in a good way, but there was also, that was a time when I had, I wasn't a fan anymore of of music. I was kind of, the, the, the in that era, I loved the Smiths. In fact, the Smiths were quite important to the silencers, not in any way of the style of music, but it was it was listening to Johnny Marr's guitar playing. I thought, yeah, that kind of way he plays a 12 string. And that's why I play was playing a 12 string too. Because I thought, yeah, that is an amazing, that's a really original way to play guitar. So so you're always you're always open to new influences. Uh, but the one that I do love that the uh, the uh, Hey, that song, I've never met a girl like you before. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I still think it's brilliant. You know, it's not yeah. Orange Juice, but it's Edwin Collins. In.
1: And, and I've got a lot would- of
2: time for, for him because, obviously, Glasgow musicians, when I was, we grew, we were in London, but when the Sanlises went back to Scotland, what we couldn't believe was that there was a lot of bands in Scotland and they were all getting signed. Lots of bands were getting signed at that time because of this phenomenon that was u2 and the british record companies were obviously thinking we need some celtic stuff going on here because that's what's selling so lots of different bands of all different styles were getting signed up in the in glasgow at that time and when I got to, when we got to glasgow all the bands hated one another because we got all in competition i suppose it's like Seattle bands or Chicago bands, they all hate one another because they all think they do the best and they want to be. And I used to coming up from London and having already done tours of the States, I used to say city bands, I said, look, this band, that band is not your problem. Your problem is what's coming out of the States or what's coming out of you've got to think like that, man. You don't, you know, it's 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 not the guy down the road who's who's going to stop you selling, you know, your career, you know. Think about what's what you hear on the radio, or think what you you know, the good stuff you hear on the radio. You know that's that's what I, that's the way I always used to think anyway. And that was London that gave me that overview about how uh, about what what uh, you know, because I just I, I always just wanted to make great records because that was that was the way. I, I I'm still probably not convinced uh, uh, enough. Myself, you know. Although eh, eh, that's just my own eh, standards, you know. I mean, when I talk about great records, I'm talking about the top, top stuff, you know. But sometimes it's stuff that people haven't heard. Of. it's just a great record. Broken time,
1: broken. Boy-
0: at that moment who were going for that stadium thing you're talking about like yeah, you guys big
2: country the water boys I would imagine were uh, well the water boys were a folk band but but it was big and it was big so I mean it, I, was something asked me about this and I was got to understand that with a political conscience we were coming from that you know with Thatcher's Britain punk and the new wave was a rebel against Thatcher's Britain and right. we wanted a more a fair, fair, more just society. So that was very important because all of the guys that had been in bands like like me, punk bands and Stuart and, uh, you know, U2 and all that, they all came from that. So they all, I feel like, you know, and also the the punk thing came out of the audience were just as important as the band on stage. And the big uh, stadium gigs came out of, of treating the audience as the stars. allowing them to be the stars as well if you know what i mean so yeah and that that was a phenomenon that that happened you know at that time it wasn't it wasn't anything that was uh calculated it was it was naturally happening you know people that had been to punk gigs then came and wanted to be involved physically involved be jumping around or, or just singing or whatever and that was something i always bought into i bought into that style much more than there was a then a wave of bands that were kind of, <laughs> they were great bands, but they didn't really move about on very much on stage, and I didn't like that because I I was so used to moving and doing something and trying to engage the audience, even though people might say, "Well, it's just an act." I say, "Well, it's not. It, it, it is an act, but it's not an act." I, I try. I'm just trying to be natural. I'm trying to be, you know, and engaged. Uh, but there was other bands that looked really bored on stage, but they became really fat famous. So, you know what I mean? Well, the no, the Stone Roses come to mind. Well, there was the Stone Roses and after them Oasis. Yeah, and right. that was that, Those that was the, the, the that was the time when I loved the music of Oasis, but I must admit, Matt, you know, I thought, God, I, I don't really see the fascination, but it was a, a change in culture because it had been used the bands doing the big gestures and all that. And so they wanted somebody just to stand there and, and just, uh, whatever, you know, and the songs are good. The thing is, it's got, it's all about songs in the end of the day. Although a stage presence and all that kind of stuff and having a, a good photograph and a magazine makes, makes a difference as well. You know, that was one thing we never had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I had a, I had a Maxell XL2S with a letter from St. Paul on one side and Aztec camera's knife on the other, and yeah. you know, talk about you guys—you were such a great performer. Whereas Roddy Frame was fairly
2: restrained, <laughs> you know. It's two totally oh, different bands. Yeah, well, the thing is, I didn't blame anybody for not being—I mean, one of my favorite artists, uh, and I remember seeing him now, would be Nick uh, Nick Drake. You know, coming from folk music, you know that his whole persona on stage—he was. And another of my favorite artists at that time, it was before the census, was J.J. Uh, Kale. And I was really influenced in the way he recorded records in London. But I saw him in London. And we all went with us of something to smoke to listen to J.J. Kale, <laughs> most of us fell asleep. And but the thing is, I think he got better as as he got as he went on. But 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 that was it. You know, there's some uh, his records were absolutely fantastic, the, the naturally and all that kind of stuff. And it's the same with uh, other bands. So uh, if somebody makes a, a record that I love, I don't really care what they do, as long as they're honest about it on stage. But uh, I do, th- I, I like when the uh, the band is doing something. I suppose it, it comes from the Beatles and the Stones in a way, because they were very visual and very interesting to watch and very engaging, you know. You know. And the Stones are still on stage now, you know, no matter what you think about them. They're they uh, they're still trying to do it, you know.
0: Were you a competitive? I mean, oh I yeah. Say, are you competitive? And were you competitive then? Because I would look around oh, and yeah. think like there was every reason to be competitive with big country, the Water Boys, the Simple Minds, yeah.
2: Delamitri. It's like
0: that was a yeah. pretty stocked
2: pond. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, when you're going out to do a big concert, we used to what we used to do is to white wind wind ourselves up. We always used to think we all played football, soccer, and to wind yourself up, we used to sing the Celtic song, which is the famous team in Glasgow, the Glasgow Celtic, and it's and it's a song that that gets you uh, ready for a battle. You know, uh, sort of. Now not a physical fighting battle, but a battle where you know you're going to have to. And that was the that was the idea because uh, nerves and all that kind of stuff. I was always very nervous, but you can't let the nerves. When you're going out and you've got all your songs, you've rehearsed all your songs, we used to rehearse a lot, you know, it's all ready, you're going out and you're going to attack the audience. Sometimes the audience need, need to be attacked. And sometimes the audience is there right from the front, word go. You know, when with Fingerprints, we played Madison Square Gardens with the... Uh, uh, no, that was, sorry, that was with Silencers. Played Madison Square Gardens with Silencers and we supported Squeeze and the guys before they said, "Listen, the gardens can be really tough on a band who don't want to go out and kick ass." If you want to use an American expression, and I was going really. He said, "Oh yeah, you know it's New York audience, man. You need to go and get them and and really grab them, you know." And and so we well, were well warned by the uh, the American guys on the and the and the crew. And so we went out and, and we did it. We had a great concert because it was the idea that you've just got to go and not give a shit and just play and really play with all putting all your heart and soul in it. And when you do that, audiences respond. They see what you, it's just going, these guys are good and, and they're up for it. And then, and then you just give a wee bit, a couple of, uh, I don't know what, you know, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, Shout, shout uh, something. You shout out, and you get yeah or whatever. You don't want to do too much of it, but you just do the right amount to get people on your side, and uh, and that that is stagecraft. It's not there's no big mystery about it. Some people are a lot better than others at it, you know. Mm. But uh, you know, yes, yeah, uh, but that that idea of that's what I'm saying. You you have to think of it like a like a uh, you you're going out. You know, the idea of doing that when I was 14 or 15 would have terrified me. I, I never, I, I I played the guitar, i sing songs and my, my, my mother and father and all my relatives, my uncles and aunts came and everyone sang a song and I never, ever sang. I never, I couldn't, I was just too nervous to sing. I played songs, I, I didn't, I could never sing. And uh, my dad was a good singer. And my mother was a really good singer and it came from them, you know. But and all I had to play all the Irish folk songs and Scottish folk songs and also some ballads, some modern ballads, you know, the, you know, and you had to learn them and, and it was and I just all did it all by ear, you know, because you don't know what song somebody's going to sing and you don't know what key they're going to sing in. So that is a good training when you're starting up playing and you're looking for you know, I was never a great, a great, a really good musician. I was but I had a really good ear, and I could kind of pick things up, you know. <laughs> and you, when you're doing it on, the, as it the American expression, on the fly, you've got to just kind of try trying it, you know. And you get, you, you just go, "Wow, well, that's that's right." Now, all right, okay. Now it goes down a semitone. That's fine, you know. And your aunt, yeah, I'm singing, and my aunt is singing a ballad or something like, and she's she's already started singing before her, you know. You know, of course the capo, if you've got a capo, that's essential Uh, (laughs) you get the song about halfway, you start to get some of the song about halfway through the song. But that's that was what I used to have to do. That was how I started playing the guitar real. That may be how you felt, but when I when I look at you on stage, you look like like, uh,
0: the heavyweight champion of the world who's just knocked (laughs) the guy out. Like you look like the most confident
2: guy I've ever seen. Oh I know. Oh well. Don't go there because, because uh, the other huge hero in my life, uh, and it came from my father because my when I was about, I think it was about 16, 15 or 16, and uh and I do remember even younger, and my father said, I'm gonna wake you up tonight, there's a bo- boxing match to watch. Because my father loved boxing, and and he explained to me how boxing was noble and it was the hardest sport in the world. And nothing is more difficult than that and the guys that do it are you know it's just he you know and so uh, uh, it got me up and it was a clay lesson it was a uh, that those the first fight which was over in seconds and also the second one which which you know and and obviously when I was that age, and Muhammad Ali came on the scene as Cassius Clay. It was just, you just go, who is this? <laughs> He's, nobody has ever been as extreme and as crazy and as talented as that, you know, and the most difficult sport there is. And I still think, I still almost think that if you're looking for, uh, uh, you know, people would laugh at this, but they would say the most, the most, the 20th century, the probably the most a important political figure was, might be be Muhammad Ali. And, you know, looking back at that whole scene, and, you know, know, I don't know, people would have had different ideas, you know, but what an entertainer he was.
0: (laughs) He was the first uh, boxing rock star.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. and he had his picture with the Beatles and all. And the Beatles looked nothing beside him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not far <laughs> off.
0: I'm not far off in saying that on the stage that there was a touch of a boxer to you.
2: Yeah, well, uh, but this was just all in my head. I mean, I, I had to. Uh, I see. I, I couldn't really. I just had to do. See, the other thing was, I'm a. I was always a really good dancer. I mean, I, I kind of picked up some of the mo- Jagger moves, which were James Brown moves. And when I was in the clubs, I would go I could dance for three hours after a show in a New York club and just keep dancing. And and that was my thing. And people saying, O'Neill, you're just, that you're a dancing fool. And I'm going, yeah. And that, I had to do that to wait, to kind of, I had so much energy. I remember, I remember because, oh, you remember the guitarist Ted Nugent? I remember he was in a, he, he, he said, that, you know, he said, sometimes I feel, I feel as if I've got the energy of 50 men and other times I've only got the energy of 20 men, but that's still a lot of energy, man. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I thought sometimes I, in, those, in those days, I thought, where does this come from? Where does this? Because I could just keep going and going. I was so fit, but of course now, I've got I've got a hip problems. I've already had one hip operation, and I'm I'm still pretty hip though, you know. As a joke,
0: well, those <laughs> in those days you were such a live wire. You you were like two percent
2: body fat. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the thing is, yeah, that's true. I mean, oh, you know, I I always say to myself, if if I'd had hair, I would have been a superstar because my hair was always really bad. It was always very wispy and light you know and eventually shaved my head you know and 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 I, I realized I looked better with a shaved head than with hair so but i was i was you know I, I, that came later but the 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 i was really really skinny and that's what i was pe- girls used to think i looked like david boy you know so there, I, there was a bit of that but you know and then another girl said Said to me, "You look a bit like Elvis Costello, who's gone off." I mean, she was trying to wind me up, you know. Who's gone off a bit? And I'm going, "Elvis Costello, who's gone off a bit?" That's not a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) But that that was punk. That was a punk years, you know. You know, we are in clubs, just everything, everything, everybody's. There was a great, there was a great club scene in London in the eighties, just at the start of the eighties, and that carried on in New York. When we went there, with fingerprints on the third album, and 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 uh, all the bands were in these clubs, so you met everyone, and you met all the record companies as well. That was one of the reasons I had a already had a reputation as a musician, a good musician, and a bit of a you know a character, I suppose. When I formed Silencers, you know.
0: I talked to um before we died. I talked to Dan from Nazareth, and he told me that he doesn't at the time he didn't like to keep the company of musicians he wanted to hang out with fishermen because he didn't want to talk about music <laughs> but i you seem well, like the kind of guy who keeps the company of musicians and artists is that is that true
2: oh yeah because my best stories that people just go you cannot be serious you know is like uh am PM. uh i, I was is an after hours club in new york i'm down There's a few people there who are musicians and that, and they say, listen, we're going to close the doors, but if you want to go downstairs into the basement, you can still there and have a drink, and and, and this is already five o'clock in the morning. So we go downstairs there and spend another couple of hours talking, and I'm talking to uh, Niall Rogers, as you would do in New York, you know? (laughs) You're a musician, <laughs> what you and, and he's telling me he's saying, and this is the '80s, right?" And he's and he said, "Oh yeah, you know." I'm saying, "Oh, listen, man, because I'm also because I'm a dancer. I'm a, I was a big soul freak, you know. I was a soul boy, really, you know. I, I had the whole gate out and all that. I used to love that, dan- you know, dancing and uh, and reggae as well. But and I said to him oh man, all the clubs, all the clubs at the moment in London are playing the Chic.'" The freak, you know, he's saying your band. He said, "You've got. You should. You should. Uh, you should do something like that. You know. You should. I don't know if you own it." And, and he said, "He said. He said. Oh, really? Really?" And I said, "Yeah. You should. You should try and uh, go to London and do something." And he said, "I. I. I might just talk to my manager and try ask him about that, and perhaps I will go to London." Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. You know. You know. Yeah. You know. And and this was just a conversation. Of course, after he worked with Duran Duran. And then he worked the boy after it, so the I don't know if I had any kind of thing in there, but I I I remember talking about that, the telling them that the uh, the freak was was in all the clubs, and it, and he saying really what? And I saying yeah, and you go to Europe as well, you go to France, and, and, you know it's it's that's what it you know that what a great record, and all those all those soul great funk records and all that that kind of stuff you know. Uh, You know, so uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was lucky. You know, I I met so many uh, uh, great musicians. You know, uh, and and, in New York at that period, you know, get invited to a to a party. I'm not going to tell you say what kind of party it is, but we got it. You know, it was New York party. You know, uh, and. I get introduced to a guy, and the hostess of the party said, oh, this is Jim, Jimmy, this is Jim. And I went, oh, hi, Jim. Shake this guy's hand. And I, I go, wait a minute. And the guy's got a kind of, he, he had just jeans, normal jeans. He looked like a student in a kind of normal kind of jacket that a kind of student would wear, you know. And it was like in a pop. And in a moment where he decided he was going to be look really straight, really normal. And we had a great conversation together about Japan. I can remember that because it was all about Japan. I had read Shogun, the book, and he was interested in Japan and we had this conversation about Japan. And then the same party was uh, uh, Woody from from The Stones, who was a fantastic character. He was a fantastic character. And one of the things he kept doing was trying to throw the cigarette in his mouth. And and he would just go, and he kept messing. He went, oh, fuck this, man. He said, he said, if I don't get this the next time, I'm 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 leaving, right? And everybody went, oh, and he went <laughs> right in his mouth. <laughs> these, these are the mad stories that I can remember from from that era that was, you know, you were, you know, it was like a it was a fantastic time to to, to, to see New York and also in London, which uh because of the Skids connection, uh the Skids did a tour. And we were on the tour with Fingerprints, and the skids had a drummer called Rusty Egan, and Rusty Egan was the DJ that opened the the Blitz Club with Steve Strange in London, which was the start of Electro. And I was there; I saw it all happening. As I, I was, uh, the first night I went, I was refused because I looked too punk by Steve, and I said to Rusty, "What the fuck, you know, you know, why is he not what? Why can't I get, you know, why is he not letting me in?" And I said, "I know, Steve. He doesn't like punks. You know." I said, "Well, how should I come in?" He said, "You know, you can, you've got lots of clothes." He said, "Come as Humphrey Bogart or something like that." I said, "All right." They okay. so just slicked my hair, hair back, wore a, one of my the the kind of thrift shop sh- suits that I've got, and and I came as front, as as a kind of Hollywood kind of looking, and. And I got in right away, and that was that was the thing, you know. And when and when I got into the, the Blitz Club, I realised the world is changing. This electro thing is going to change the world. And and uh, because punk, as I said, the punk was only two or three years in the going, but it already became a problem in terms of concerts. Mm. And the other thing with the silences that maybe people don't realise is. When I make my demos, I always like JJ Kale, I made the demos with a, a drum machine. So there was always a groove there. And when we recorded the records, we did exactly the same. We recorded a real groove before we added things on. And so that that whole kind of electro thing I adapted into the silences. And also, a, a, but it was a guitar band. We wanted guitars because we loved guitars but there was always a groove in the song, mostly, you know.
0: It seems like a lot of people have regrets, it, you know, oh, I should have gone to that
2: party, I should have done that
0: thing. It feels to me like you said yes to pretty much everything.
2: Well, no. Well, I, I, I didn't really, I, I did and I didn't. I was smart enough to try everything, but not get hooked on anything, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because there was a lot of stuff going around in those days. And in London, what I was saying, the club scene in London, you know, cocaine was a, just a kind of pathway to 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 heroin, but I was not uh, I was not that way inclined. I, I, I could dabble and be very careful, and not and I didn't need you know, you know. Uh, I didn't have, I, I didn't I couldn't see the point in spending all that money on something that <laughs> was going to be gone, and the you know, and I had a family. Uh, you know, I, I suppose. I always had, I was a, even though I was a a, a mad clubber, I had a family, I had kids, and uh, all that kind of stuff, and that keeps you kind of on the, on the rails, I suppose, and you know, I mean, I, and even now I've got I've got a young my my son, uh, Shane, he's only eight years old, mm-hmm. so that takes up a lot of a lot of your time, yeah, it keeps you keeps you uh, kind of normal in the as you know. I suppose you know.
0: yeah it certainly keeps you anchored um yeah,
2: that's uh, anchored
0: right when you when you because I know your big the next big thing is in December so when there's this sort of time between silencers events uh are you kind of going like are, are, do you feel a little bit like I gotta get out there or are you pretty good at relaxing
2: oh no no the, 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 that that period of uh, promotion uh well there's two reasons for that the, the, the period of promotion has came and gone and now I'm relaxed, I'm building up to going to do a Christmas show in Scotland. Right. So I've got to go over there and there's flight problems, so i am just got my fingers crossed. Everything works as it normally does. Uh, and try and get to Scotland uh, uh, for the concerts, the concert. Uh, after that, I come back and I get hit my hit operation. Then. <laughs> Oh, the only you get—that's what you end up talking about—the operation that's coming on, on the horizon. <laughs> so that's as I said, all the dancing and all the football I played. You know, the, you know, I've got one done. It's fine. I've got to get the other one done when, uh, uh, when I come back. So I'm still, I'm still mobile, and I'm not, uh, I'm not. It's kind of handicapping, but it's not, it's not. Uh, uh, you know, I'll be okay. You know, hopefully. Inshallah. Well, the, the healing time on
0: that thing is so much different than it used to be now people are yeah. like you know like six weeks or something or eight weeks and you're you're back to the
2: you know yeah you know i mean except the first time first operation i, I got i got an infection no oh. wasn't that wasn't very uh that was stressful yeah and, and the thing is you know when you're just healing you know you're trying you're, you know i was on all this medicine and you know you're 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 just going to just be positive just people and that's like a battle that's what i'm saying that kind of combative thing i'm aries i suppose I have a fire sign i'm aries my man eight-year-old son is in aries as well mm. and i can see everything in him. And i'm going oh, oh he's exactly like me he's got boundless energy you know and and uh, determination and it doesn't take uh no Easily, he fights against it. He fights against everything, you know. That he doesn't agree with, and he knows <laughs> nothing. He's only eight years old, you know. I never did that at eight years old, but that was later on, you know. <laughs> so
0: you'll so you do the show, get the hip operation, and then what does the spring look like for you? What what happens? Is, um... Well, there's
2: next year. There's going to be and We've got a tour planned already. We've got we've got a big d- date in Paris at the end of the year. We've got the f- summer festivals, and we've got we've got uh, a tour in France. Because we did, we did three shows there, uh, we did the album and we did another two shows. And the 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 guy who's the agent, he, he sees that there's, there's people out there that still, because our band was enormous in France, we were enormous. And if we'd have been a French band, we would have already came back with an album and we would have already had a uh, uh, a, a bigger audience, but we're not French. We're Scottish, and we weren't even, you know, necessarily. We weren't sent to the French record companies. We were sent to a British record company. So that 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 was what. Uh, so so now we're coming back, and it's 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 absolutely uh, fantastic to be able to do that. You know, how's the record do in France? The new one. Oh, it's doing really well. It's got great. Yeah. We get great publicity. And and it's doing as well as records do. Right. Now, which we're not in the same model. And that's what I was always wondering, you know, is there any point in getting on with this? But I was going, well, I'm just going to keep this thing going as long as I can. You know, I don't really see the need. <laughs> I mean, it's a way, it's a way of of making a bit of spare cash, you can say, but it's also it, it keeps the whole my whole songwriting uh real going and and the older songs get played as well and and they might have done some kind of deal with spotify or something like that. you know the the publishing companies what i've noticed is i'm getting a little bit more than i used to get there was there was a time when none of my old songs were bringing in any money at all zero and they were on they were all on all the all the You know, it's on YouTube, it's on Spotify. So I don't know what's happened, but there's a little bit more than there was. Just enough for going, oh, well, that's okay. You know, we'll see. I just, all I can say is I never expected to be here. Not even, as, not necessarily as a musician. That would never have been a case. But I think the reason I am is because it was so difficult for me because of my nerves and all that to eventually get into the music business and to have a a, a life as, as a creative person uh, that I don't want really wanted to, to stop because my voice is still good uh, and uh, I feel good on stage I can't jump around like I used to before but I've, I've got authority you know I'm becoming the kind of I've got that uh, what's the word, rock and roll uh, uh I had the phrase in the head, I can't remember, but it's, I've got that, I, I'm giving the people what, not a lot of people understand how to give now. And that that comes from my life and also, you know, age, the experience, you know? And I went to see some of the best artists I ever saw were blues artists, you know? And I can remember seeing the Mississippi Fred McDowell in Glasgow. You know, and I didn't question the fact of what age he was. I saw Sonny Terry and Brandon McGee in London lots of times. And, you know, I'm just a music freak, and I always have been. And that, that is the way I've lived my life, and that's the way I've got no choice. I've got to keep going, you know?
0: Well, I mean, on, on stage, from, from the clips I've seen, you have an authority <laughs> and a command and also a generosity. There's this beautiful balance between those two so it's like you're very relatable but you're also controlling the the
2: stage it's really cool well that that has all come that that's come now with experience but i mean if i'm not experienced now i'm never going to be no but also there is all the but but just like when i did that tv show there are still times you've just got to meet you've got to kind of sleep a leap in the dark you don't know where you're going to go and you've just got to go and not be afraid and in fact that is that i'm absolutely probably much better i, I don't i i could be a very good a uh, improvised improvisation guitarist hmm. and it's one thing that i've never done i would love to do it i would love just to go and play guitar somewhere and just improvise because i've always been good at that but i've never did it live and an improvised Musician just making up kind of a crazy melody or or with funny sounds, you know. And that's how I write songs. I write songs that have to sound good. So when I write, I always just make the words up. When I write, when I do demos or, or the first version of a song is a melody I've got in my head, and I just sing something, and usually the words are come out subconsciously, as and then I've got and then I can tailor that and make it because it's the way it sounds is very important. It's not just the words being really good words. They've got to sound good. And that's that's always been important to me. You know?
0: Well, man, I think you're one of the greats. I've always thought that. And so okay. it's a, it's an honor to to sit and chat with you. I've wanted to talk to you for 30 years. I'm glad we finally did it.
2: Well, Alex, this has been, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm so happy. Uh, to be to, really, I feel like, uh, a relight the touch paper, uh, the blue touch paper that was when you put off a firework, Uh, but also having having a uh, contact in the States as well, you know, uh, and San Francisco, which, as I said, that was my first, that was my first uh, concert in the United States. And my first day in the United States was coming for the Rachel Sweet tour and arriving in San Francisco. And you could not get any more romantic. About that, and then ending up in the Mabuhay Gardens after on that first night, you know, meeting all the um, punky cool. people, you know, which was amazing, you know. <laughs> but, I mean,
0: I hope. What are the chances of the silencers coming back to San Francisco?
2: Wow, the, everything is possible. Who knows? Yeah. You know, everything is possible. It's just a case of. It's just a case of someday going. You know, we can get a cheap deal of, and we can get these guys over. You know. Yeah. Uh, who knows? You know, I mean, I've always thought I had, mo- I would maybe have more chance of fingerprints reformed to come back in the states, you know, because fingerprints were a, an absolutely brilliant band. But how we would I ever manage to get those songs together again? Uh, because they were really tricky, not tricky, but just they were my it was my two guitar things, wild kind of stuff. But they were, re- I thought we were really, re- really original. Made some great pop songs as well. And I don't, I don't see... I mean, fingerprints is, is another part of me, so I know what it is. Sometimes there's bits of fingerprints and silencers, but fingerprints is a different kind of band. And a lot of people, uh, when they hear fingerprints, they go, you know, I don't really like silencers, but I love fingerprints. <laughs> I say, well, you, well, yeah, well, because you're a bit more rock-roll and punky kind of thing, you know. But other people who get the silencers, they go, no, no, it's just the... And for me, The Sanisers is a more rounded, uh, mm. sophisticated creation. But, yeah. but Fingerprints is the genuine article too. And The Sanisers, mm. when we play live, we're, we're, we're not the records are, are, let's be honest, they're slick, they're good, they're very well produced, and a lot of people like that. In America, <laughs> on their first album, which we thought was immaculately produced, it was an alternative record. So there was something going on there, but so there's always that alternative thing in the silences, I suppose, because it's not, it's not like what, do you, what was it they call it in the uh, in the states uh, middle of the MOR, you know, it's not right. Typical yeah. MOR uh, sound, you know, and we were never that because the whole punk thing was the antith- antithesis of of the MOR American sound, even though they were. All, Always good records out there, you know. But we were doing something different. And when guys came in with long hair and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, and it was ironic that the next wave of metal came from British punk, you know—that really high-energy British punk, you know, which you know, kind of, you know, uh, Metallica and all that kind of stuff, you know. But that—that—that's what I like. Actually, I think music really has always been hybrids. Of something that's already there put together with something that's going to come next, it's like uh, rock and roll was swing mixed with country, country mm. swing, country R and B, you know. And but if the guy if the guy hadn't been playing the the swing, you know that's what made it rock and roll that rockabilly uh, double bass kind of thing. Because I play a lot, I play with a friend of mine, and we do Rockabilly songs. And because he's the double bass player, and I love that because that is a it's that hybrid thing of is, is putting something that everybody knows but hasn't been, you know, and then just mixing it with something else, you know. It's like I've heard some hip rock records recently. I don't know who is who is doing it, but I go. That's like an old blues sound. They've took that old sound from a New Orleans bass drum and they've stuck it in there, and then a second hit singing hip hop around it that that's interesting that's really interesting that's some that's interesting you know
0: well the pogues sure, sure did that hey eh? the pogues surely did that right they blended that sort of
2: well the, the, the pogues at first I, I could hardly believe it because until you see the pogues live well i did see that i fight that spoiled it for me a wee bit at the start because the pogues on stage in the early days were always drunk i mean really drunk so and i had a, i was a folk fan and i was i was in a a, a great uh a, a irish music for me was there it was like the chieftains it was like paul brady it was a uh, flank all the great the fantastic irish music uh, which is still a national treasure for for ireland and and and, and uh, uh and when i saw the pogues who were like all. Completely pissed on stage and falling about. I said, "That's just an absolute joke. That's a joke." And I, and and I knew the the uh, Dave Robinson, who was the manager of Steph, He was the manager of stuff, and I had met him before he became that because he used to run the Hope and Anchor in London. And I met him, and he was Irish. he was Dublin, and and I said, I said to him, "Ah, oh, you're bad the pogs They were absolutely. It was absolutely." Rubbish, you know. it's said they're all completely pissed. And he says, "Yeah." He said, "But they make great records." And and when I heard the records, I had to. And I said, "Well, Dave was right. They made, <laughs> they make fantastic records." So, but so in that con- controlled environment, uh, but also, so I did see Shane McGowan uh, in Paris, and I, I, I the Pogs in them were okay live a couple, of, two or three times, and I saw Shane McGowan in Paris. On his own with a with a band after after left the Pogues, and he was really really he, he wasn't interested. He was he, he had too much to drink, so he was kind of sleepy on stage and just not trying. And then somebody, a guy down the front, started to ha- hassle him. You know, really like some probably an ex punk down the front going, "For fuck's sake, guy, get it!" sort of you know. And he, was, and he started by saying, fuck off, fuck off, you fuck off. And he got angry. And then he started becoming good. And the last 15 minutes of concert were brilliant. Because he was just... You see, I'm a big thing. One of the things I know is poison for artists. There's too much alcohol on stage. We're too much in on stage. Some people can handle it. And there was a vague of, yeah, it was really cool. We're all pissed on stage. they are all completely stoned on stage. But if you're, if you're in an audience, I just think it's in it. Something you can get away with, it and I'm not going to certain that as I'm sure have done it and have been absolutely wonderful, like Mick Jagger, for example, you know. But uh, I just think it's to treat the audience with respect. If you were the, in the audience, you know, at least, you, you know, whatever it takes to make you relax enough just to be that on good, but too much, too much alcohol, too much is not is, is, is cool, you know. no. Sometimes, I mean, it depends on the music, right? Enough. You know, some music, music is easier than others, but some music is a lot easier to play than others.
0: I got to tell you, Jimmy, it's just so cool to be able to sit down with you and hear all these stories. And I'm so happy that you're willing to, you know, go through them all because I find them
2: incredibly interesting. I, I love being able to talk to people who love music and are interested in some of the the stories that I've got because it allows me to relive those moments as well.
0: that guy he's the best he's the absolute best jimmy o'neill of the silencers we're gonna have him back because he has more stories for sure that uh, i want to hear and i'm sure you'll want to hear him too the guy can tell a story it, he is a really interesting fellow and i could have kept chatting with him for sure actually we did keep talking long after the record button was pushed off and um, all i can tell you is we'll bring him back for sure because he has a lot more to share the is where you need to go to find out what's happening with The Silencers. There is a gig in Glasgow, December 23rd. Get your tickets from bands in town. Do go see them if you're in Glasgow. Go see them if you're not in Glasgow and you want to go to Glasgow and you want to see The Silencers. Two birds, one stone. Knock it out. You won't be sorry. That's two days before Christmas, too. So imagine you'll be in Scotland. You'll be seeing The Silencers. It's a recipe for magic. Take someone you love and uh, let the magic ensue. Take someone that you're trying to love. Maybe this will be the clincher, you know? You're trying to uh, get over the line and convince them that you're the one for them. Well, a trip to Scotland to see the silencers on December 23rd. That might be just the thing that you need to get this romance kicked into another gear. (laughs) What am I giving dating advice? Believe me, I am not one to deliver any counsel in that department. But I can give you counsel in other areas, so try me. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Follow me on what's left of Twitter at Embers editor, or on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Don't forget BombshellRadio.com is a great place to go to find out what makes our radio station tick. It's really the only place to go. If you want to find out about Bombshell Radio, go to BombshellRadio.com. That is really the only place that's going to tell you all about us stereo embers the podcast is available on all podcast platforms go to the one that you use subscribe rate and review and tell all your friends we appreciate you spreading the word let's close the show with a longer listen to western swing from the fabulous new album by the silencers silent highway enjoy it thank you as always for listening to stereo embers the podcast only right here On Shell Radio.
1: Have you been afraid yet today? There's no survivors. The sheriff's on his way with a forty five. I was here at home.